Hello, and welcome to the Hockey Assist, a basketball podcast. Here, we have conversations that give basketball fans deeper perspective on the game by connecting what's happening on the court to the sport at large. My name is Nolan Cope, and here is my co-host, Riley Gaucher. What up, Mr. Cope? I am so excited to be back, having another great episode in the works for all of you and, and getting to talk about it with you, Nolan. Yeah, we've we've got a good one, a good one coming up today. But first, I think we should address the fantasy basketball elephant in the room. Oh, oh, okay, okay. You blindsided with me for the, the listeners out there. I had no idea that this was in the rundown or the plans. Uh, what what do you want to say, Nolan? What do you you want you want to brag a little bit? You want to you want to roast me? What's what's going on here? I want to I want to say how much I enjoyed our fantasy basketball matchup last week because for for those of you out there, many of our listeners are part of this league as well. But for those of you out here there who are unaware, Riley and I are in a fantasy league with a bunch of our buddies called the League of Leagues. We've talked about it before. It is a tri-sport league where we drafted for the upcoming year of fantasy basketball, football, and baseball all at the, all the same time, uh, right? Yep. All part of the same draft. And in the fantasy basketball league, ended up being first, and Riley stormed out to a quick 7-0 and in the first seven weeks of the season and immediately painted a big red target on his back. And he's currently on a two-game slide, in part because last week he and I played each other and got the two highest scores in the league, but mine just happened to be a little bit higher. Riley, do you want to comment on on your two-game slide a bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, I think everyone's got it out for me, which I think is, it's fine. You know, it's what life is like at the top. Um, I think... I couldn't go undefeated forever as much as that would have brought me immense joy. Uh, I tried to try to be humble about it because I knew the loss was coming at some point. So uh, this is this is just how you know the world works. Um, I, I I don't like to make excuses, um, so I'm I'm gonna take take the L as gracefully as I can. Uh, that being said, if we were uh, hashtag full squatting uh, this, I am confident I would wipe the floor with with anyone else in our league. Uh, it's just, you know, that's, that's all I have to say about that. So, so catch me in the playoffs when everyone that I drafted is playing the way that I intended them to. And we'll see, we'll see what the result is. How about that? That's, that's wonderful. And yes, I full disclaimer, uh, my, my squad while not being at full strength, didn't quite compare to Riley's where he was missing Paul George and drew holiday for the week due to injuries and put the points scored by Paul George and drew holiday probably would have helped his final score a little bit this week. And yeah, only by a hundred or so points, I bet. Yeah. Which is the, the margin of victory. And it, it's the whole fantasy sports element is it's just such a crapshoot because on any given week based on any given injury, 
more points are scored from one side or the other side. But we still yeah, try well, to have also fun. Doesn't doesn't help when the state of Texas um, experiences a cataclysmic event and forces you know teams in that region to postpone all their games. That was a. Uh, that was something that nobody could have foreseen and nobody could have counted for. Uh, and that's just, you know, it's a perfect example of what you're talking about, how random and unpredictable this, uh, this thing we love to talk about is. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to the playoffs and I hope we meet again because our teams have oh, been have responsible no for most of the highest scoring events of the fantasy season so far. And it, hopefully that can culminate in, some playoff success. But in the meantime, the listeners out there don't care as much about our fake basketball. And the, those of you who are in our league probably don't enjoy the, uh, the gloating from the number one and number two seed. So we're going to transition to, well, I would say we're going to transition to real basketball, but uh, the first and really only topic that we have for today's shoot around, because we think it's going to take a little bit of time. The, the main topic we have for the shoot around today is all-star debates and all-star selections. So that could very easily be the argument that we are still talking about fake basketball. So, Riley, do you enjoy all-star season, the debates, the selections, the agonizing over certain players and figuring out the right picks? Oh, I, I love it. I love it. I... Uh... You know, it's it's one of those times where you get to have strong opinions and you get to, you know, directly have the this or that debate. And there's a lot of a lot of questions about like what do people value, which I think is to me is even more interesting necessarily than like, oh, this guy deserves to make it this year. Because a lot of the time the starters are all pretty consensus and even a huge majority of the uh, the like reserves are, are a consensus. And so it's it's all about those last couple spots. And so. I think it's really, really interesting to see the cases and have these have these debate eyes. So I, I love it. I'm, I'm all about it. The only part that I don't love is the idea of snubs, right? This is this has been made by a ton of people over the years that if you want to, let's say like Bradley Beal last year, right? He was one of the last players not uh, included on that East squad and leading the league in points, if I remember correctly. Um, there's there's always this outcry oh how could you not do this what a snub and the 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 retort that i love that comes largely from people like zach Lowe, right is that if you want to complain like that you have to tell me who shouldn't make it you know you can't just say as much as i i do believe that there are more all-star level players and players who deserve to have the title of all-star than can make it every year that's not the reality that we live in right and so I, I, I hate it when there's this, this, oh, that, what a diss, what a snub, what a insult to you, you idiots. You left off Bradley Beal. And then no one is willing to say, well, okay, put your cojones on the line and, and call somebody out and say, yeah, that means Chris Middleton doesn't deserve to be an all-star. Or who do you want to take off that list? So that's, that's the only part that really rankles my, rankles my hackles. Is that a thing? Raises, Raises my hackles? hackles. I don't know. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So, so overall, you're you're a fan of this part of the NBA season. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, I every every year when All Star season comes around, I start to get caught up in a lot of those same emotions that you do. Right. I am another guy who loves having strong 
opinions, right? I love having strong opinions and I love debates and I love these types of conversations about player value and whatnot. But every all-star season, I find myself disappointed by the process and disappointed by the final result. Okay. So I'm, I'm so at the end of it, like I, I don't want to be the full on wet blanket, but it's, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't always get me going. I'm, I'm the, the debates in themselves and the, the combination of voting is done as it, as best as it possibly can. But every year there's a few moments and there's a few things that just lead me to go, what the fuck? And just like lose all faith in the process. For example, last year, Trey Young being an all-star starter over a wealth of qualified people in the league. So anyway, I think it would be fun for the rest of our shoot around to, to just go over some of these questions, to go over some of these uh, thoughts on the all-star game that go into the decisions that we make and wonder to ourselves is this a good process or is, is there still things to be left desire? Cause for you, you love it for me. I'm on the fence. So I, cool. I think so, we should, I think we should talk a little bit about that. Totally. I'm, I'm so here for it. And so I, I want to start off by asking you, what is it? What are these, these parts of it that really turn you off and make you mad? You know, is it just specific like player situations being, in, or, you know, you you seem to be lamenting much more about the overall situation than than just you know Trey Young getting to be a starter versus a reserve, right? Like, so what is it? What is it that that really makes you upset and, and checks out of the uh, this debate? That's a great question, and for me, uh, whether we like it or not, being selected as an All Star in the NBA is goes into a player's legacy. Like their future there, when people like us look back on players from the eighties, we'll see that someone showed up in 12 all-star games versus someone who showed up in four all-star games. It's at the top of every player's basketball reference profile. It goes into the legacy. And for me, there are so many questions on the ambiguity involved on how these players are selected that it hurts me a little bit when certain players legacies can be affected all the way down the line based on certain people having entirely different definitions of what is an all-star than other people have. And then what I have. Nolan, I think you are going to, you know, those words are going to come back to us in just a couple minutes when we switch this to our main topic for the day, because I share that opinion. Uh, in regards to a certain different award, but I, I I understand where you're coming, but I do not I do not feel the same way about All Star. And let me let me tell you why. I just kind of ignore how many All Star games somebody's made, right? Like I I think it is as a as a nice bonus, but I never think of a lack of All Star appearances as something that should ever detract from someone's legacy, precisely because it is what you just described. And I think. For me, you know, I think we have better ways to measure someone's contributions to the sport. And I think the, the framing of All-Star as, as a celebration, but also, you know, fan service, right? And, and 
uh, a reward for fans, an event for fans to see what they want to see, not necessarily pick the the best players or pick the the, the most deserving players. I think that's okay. Um, partly because All-Star only ever counts for the first half or maybe uh, three-fifths of the season, right? Like what happens if someone plays like an All-Star the rest of the season? We don't give out seven, second half All-Star awards. So to me, you know, like Steph Curry, it, this doesn't this doesn't affect him particularly, but he has a tradition of post All-Star break having a huge uptick in three-point shooting, right? This is just, you know, statistically a weirdity. Like he's a great shooter. And then after after February, after March, his shooting goes through the roof. It's, it's happened over and over and over again. Obviously, he still stays an All-Star because he's popular and a great player. But I, it makes me think what other players out there, you know, just have a general pattern that the deeper into the season they go, the more comfortable they get, the, the better they play. And, and it, you know, it's inherently unfair to me that we don't uh, give out a second half All-Star or acknowledge that or factor that in. So for me, it's easy enough to just say, like, it's a flawed process. And it's a process that is really just about producing an exciting weekend of events and and celebrating and getting a chance to produce some funny, engaging highlights uh, from the game's biggest stars. And I treat it much more like a marketing opportunity than I do, you know, a serious reflection of of the merits and skills and legacy of a player. Okay, I like that. I I, I like I like that. So I'm going to ask you a few a few questions here, just to to sort of to sort of go through this exercise to get into into your brain on if you had a media vote or if you were a player or if when you're casting your votes as a fan, right? I want I want to ask you some questions to sort of get to the bottom of that all star belief here. So question number one, based off what you're saying of it as a entertainment event, should all star selections be considered entirely for fan service are we are we should the all-star selections go towards creating only the best entertainment value sure um i don't necessarily think so i think a lot of the time it is it is easy enough for those two things the, the venn diagram you know between fan service and recognizing excellence to be pretty damn close to a circle um, and so I, I, I don't think it has to be, you know, we're going to, we're going to put a, uh, oh, let's, let's pull someone, uh, De'Aaron Fox or uh, an Obi top and right players who have like explosive physical gifts and, you know, De'Aaron Fox might even uh, warrant legitimate R star consideration this year, but I, I have almost no illusion that he's going to make it. I'm, I'm very sorry to our, our friends in Sacramento. Um, and so if, if, if I was, you know, trying to pick a team that was just the most fun to watch, I might put him on there because he has, has speed that is unmatched by anybody else in the league. Um, but I, I think in general, right, like the the most exciting players are often the best ones. And so I, I don't see that as a huge problem. But if, if I was forced to put a gun to my head, I would say I would say no, it's not 100% about, about fan service because that's why we have the dunk contest or that's why we have the three-point contest or the, sh- like, you know, the skills competitions. Those allow players who, you know, everybody just wants to see but maybe aren't playing at that all-star level to get in there. And I'm sorry if this is, you know, splitting to extremes, but. No, I, I like that. I, I especially like your point of separating the events of the weekend, like the, the player, the game itself trying to highlight the best players and the events trying to highlight some of those entertaining players. I really like that point. And I, so now I've got, I've got a follow-up question for you. 
because I feel like I agree with you to this point. It's a it's largely for entertainment. It's an entertainment event, but we should also be moving towards uh, selecting some of the best players. Would you say that's correct? Yes, yes. I feel like I'm walking to a trap. There's, I'm waiting for this next question. Hit me. No, th- there's there's no trap. I just I just want to hear want to hear your your thoughts and beliefs on this. Should we be, if we're trying to select the best players, should we be selecting, if there's 12 players on each roster, should we be selecting the best 24 players in the league and trying to identify those best 24 players and selecting them? Or are we trying to select the best players of this first half of the season? So even though some players may not be playing up to the level they normally are, uh, they would be left out in favor of someone on a hot streak? Or are we including career achievement? Does someone get an extra nod because of what they've done over their career as opposed to what they've done this season? What, what, what of those three of those three yeah. options, those three options being best players, carte blanche, best players in the half season, or career achievement factor? Wh- which do you weigh more importantly than others? Sure, sure. Um... You know, and I, I really hate to seem like the Zach Lowe parrot that I am, but I, I very much subscribe to his position, which is, you know, we, we start um, with, you know, best, best half season. That's kind of like we try and make it about this year. That's, that's the first criteria. And that usually like weeds out a lot of people and it kind of eliminates a lot of issues. Then if we're kind of tie breaking between two very similar players, We'll probably go with the best player, even if they're if they're having very similar half um, half things. And then, to me, like the final element, I would I would be comfortable including at least a little bit of uh, you know career situation, mostly in tiebreaking, right? Like I, I wouldn't use this to argue for someone who's clearly having a worse season over someone who's having a better season because I think that's you know it, it still is a twenty twenty one All Star, right, or a twenty twenty All Star. Like that is that is the historical portion. I think that's valid, right? To go back and look at who was selected that year, I think that counts. That's where the, the difference to me though is like I don't ever really count. Like, let's take baseball, right? Willie Mays made twenty four All Star games, which is an incredible achievement. It blows my mind, and I still would not argue that that is like the key to his legacy, or that that solely is going to elevate him over a Mike Trout or Babe Ruth in in like all time kind of conversation because I think again this is mostly about fan service right so when when Dirk Nowitzki and Dwayne Wade got like honorary spots a couple years ago to me that was great because you know again this is this is about celebration and I think they deserved like a career accomplishment kind of participation trophy if you will that that I don't know it didn't bother me because I just don't I don't take this um as you know, like the hard and fast arbiter of, of the merits of someone's year. So does that, does that hierarchy make sense to you? And, and how would you feel about that? Yeah, that, that hierarchy does make sense to me with starting with, with the best half season. And I think if most people were able to rationally do that, uh, I think that would be a great way of going about it. And I know we're, we're in uh, still the newer system of, fans, coaches, and media selecting the all-star position. And 
I'm grateful for that. Uh, but even the players and coaches are fallible a bit to, I think, the career achievement, right? And so I have this in, in mind with Kobe Bryant made 18 all-star games. He had 18 all-star appearances, including the last three years of his career where he just wasn't the same all-star type player. One of those years, he played in six games and tore his Achilles and was still elected to the all-star game. So I think those types of th- things are, 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 still, are still present, but I, I like your system of going treating that as the last final thing as opposed to the uh the something that should be considered up front i think i think to me the perfect example is yao ming right i i don't know off the top of my head how many all-star appearances he made but uh i know it, it was a lot five five no excuse me eight uh all-star appearances five all nba appearances to me, I don't know if Yao was quite that level of player, mostly because of injuries, right? When he was healthy, he was amazing. But to me, this was just like he had a massive fan base in China. They were able to vote for him and they wanted to see him in that game. And they did. And so I don't, again, like I don't begrudge the fans, you know, who want to see a guy. Like if Zaza Pachulia had made the All-Star game a couple of years ago and he was really, really close because all of Georgia decided to vote for him. I, yes, it would have been absurd and it would have made a mockery of the process but i it's you know just what you just said about kobe like i I think that ship had already sailed right like i don't don't think this is you know the end all and be all so as much as that would have been weird and as much as it wouldn't have really been deserved on the merits of his play i i would not have begrudged him that honor and just as the same way i don't begrudge yao or kobe even if i agree with you i I don't think they deserve to be all-stars every time that they were selected yeah that that's a great point. I've got one final all-star question for you before we end the shoot around and move on into our next thing. How much does team success or how much should team success factor into all-star selections? Yeah, again, this is gonna this is gonna hint at something I want to talk about um, later. I I don't know. I I like rewarding like when the Hawks got four all-stars. Um, in five all stars, right? Their whole starting five. Uh, oh no, it was Yeah, I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy rewarding the best teams, and I think, like, it was cool, and it was, it was probably a good thing that Draymond Green got some all star nods in a couple of years when his like outright numbers didn't make, like, you know, triple singles and whatever kind of jokes people want to make. But he was one of the best twenty four players in the league, no question. You know, some. Some uh, lists as you know as, as reputable as Sports Illustrated, where Rob Mahoney and Ben Golliver have, have done a tr- tremendous job over the years ranking the the top 100 players. They had him as high as 10th, I believe, in the NBA at one point um, because of his impact. And so I think like he totally deserved to make it because of the strength of the Warriors team. All that being said, I you know, the worse a team is, I don't really hold it against a guy, especially when it comes to all-star, you know, I think that's the part of the argument that, that just carries the least weight to me because it's such an individual honor at the end of the day, right? Like, you know, the, those, those Hawks probably individually weren't all deserving, but that was, that was fine to me because they were doing something special collectively. Um, 
it's so yeah maybe it's a double standard but like i i i'm fine using that to boost somebody's candidacy and i really just don't use it to detract from someone's candidacy because again to me all-star is much more about your individual numbers like how exciting you were to watch play and all this stuff versus how much you're actually impacting winning because if it was impacting winning i think it'd be an entirely different event and an entirely different conversation and uh, nikola vucevic would be like the number one candidate this year or something like that right um, if we were able to completely ignore everything else around it yeah see I, I won't i won't beleaguer this point too much uh but here's where i think we disagree the most on all-star is i would like to see the the best players who impact winning the most in there you know like i don't think there's a reason that rudy gobert should have missed any of of these uh recent playoff or any of these recent all-star games or chris middleton middleton should be maybe not starting but be one of the easiest off the books reserves you know these guys who very clearly impact winning even the guys like draymond maybe not this year but in general and like a guy like zach levine who's uh nearly averaging 30 points a game and five assists and five rebounds for the bulls and whatnot he's averaging those for the bulls who are bottom of the bottom of the Eastern conference, you know? And so yes. guys like Zach Levine, while he may lead to a more entertaining product in the all-star game, I don't know if I would want to reward him with uh, the, with my vote simply sure. because he, he just doesn't, he just doesn't do it for me. So, okay. Hold, hold that back. Zach Levine thought, because that's something I want to talk about with Steph a little bit later. Um, especially like how much individuals can impact winning and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hear where you're coming from. I get it. I, All right. I just, I, I guess I've stopped caring quite so much. Like I used to be very hardline about this and I just, in my old age, I've gotten soft. I, I, I think getting soft in, in, in this opinion is, is something that leads to a lot more happiness, you know? And I, I think sure. this, this is the first year that I've been, been feeling old and curmudgeon about the all-star process. And yeah. I should probably just take a deep breath and enjoy it for what it is, not for No, I, it's good to have opinions and it's good to have, yeah. have takes. So Riley and I keep hinting at the next conversation we're going to be having for the rest of the podcast. So we're going to cut off all, our all-star uh selection debate here and we're going to transition into the minutia minute before getting to the big stuff riley take yes, take us I'm away putting, putting one minute on the clock uh, okay um recently there has been a proliferation of uniforms in the aba with the you know nike taking over and getting the city edition and all these special editions and i am here for it i love new uniforms i love seeing design and creativity and everything. But it has been pointed out a lot recently, especially on NBA Reddit and whatnot, that this has gone too far. And I, I fully agree because we have situations where two teams will be wearing special edition uniforms and it might not be their primary colors. And they'll be in an arena that uh, totally does not match either of these uniforms. And you can't tell who the home team is. There was, there was an example where the Lakers were wearing blue and the Sixers were wearing dark red, I think, playing in Philadelphia. And it was just really, really, really confusing. And so I am here to say, bring back home whites. 
I, I know I don't want to stop there being more uniforms. I love the designs and I love the city editions that are out there, but I think we need to return to this tradition, at least that, oh, oh that's my minute, um, that, that teams should have to wear at least a consistent white color for a majority, you know, like, okay, you have a Martin Luther King Day special edition, great. You have a Christmas edition, great. But the fact that there's this total freedom to mix and match at any point, it gets really hard to understand when you take a glance at a game, who is who and which team is is where. And so I, I, I just want to stand a little bit for the idea that, that home whites have tradition behind them and they also have practical uses in making the game more easy to consume and, and, and easy to, uh, to watch. Yeah. The one that stands out to me was when the Brooklyn Nets were playing the Milwaukee Bucks and the Nets were home. But the Bucks were in like a silver jersey and the Nets were in this like bright blue jersey and the court was black and white. And it was so visibly jarring. I didn't really know know what to do here. So yep. NBA yeah. teams, jersey designers, call Riley, have 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 him have him give you some give you some help in that front. Oh yeah, and uh just one one last sentence about this shout out to the Chicago Bulls uh, city edition this year, because I think it is one of, if not the most beautiful Jersey I've seen. And I am, I'm deeply in love with it. Anyway, that's all. That's all for the minutia minute this week. Thank you for giving me this platform to, to rant about things that do not matter. How last, last thought on jerseys. How do you feel about uh, the golden state warriors stabbing the city of Oakland in the back? moving to San Francisco uh, oh and then changing their entire marketing scheme to pretend that they're still in Oakland. This, this conversation could go on for a really long time. Um, Give me the 30 second version. 30 second. Okay. I acknowledge the shittiness of this gesture. I acknowledge how terrible it was. Um, I do not, as much as I, you know, I would have loved the team to stay in Oakland. I do not begrudge them moving. Right. Like I, I think, like it's just they're a business and they're still in the Bay Area. They didn't try and move the team to fucking uh, San Diego or where, right? Like so, I, I I do I do feel sad for Oakland and Oakland natives, but I think you know it, it was going to happen eventually. So it's it's okay. They they did a nice job in the arena, and I, so I, I appreciate like paying homage to Oakland. And at first, I hated the jerseys because I something about the colors really it just felt tacky to me. Like the color, I, I can't describe this, but there was some part of the color scheme that felt cheap. Um, maybe it was the color of orange. It just really, I don't know, didn't feel like a fit. The more I've seen them, the more they've grown on me. Um, I don't have the personal attachment to the We Believe era, but people who, who see the uniforms really do like the uniforms. It's just the, all the politics that you, you mentioned that, that give drawback. And so I've come around to say, you know, screw the team for, for doing this too late, right? They never had an Oakland themed jersey while they were in Oakland. At the same time, the jerseys are cool. The court is beautiful and the warm-up jackets are exquisite. Just the warm-up jackets. I need one. I need one. Anyway, that's my my 30 second take. Well done, sir. So as we transition to our main idea of the episode here. Riley and I were, were both we're, we're both big consumers of NBA media, right? Uh, Riley loves Zach Lowe. I deeply love 
Kevin O'Connor and the, the staff at the ringer. Uh, we, we listen to the mismatch. We listen to podcasts. We we're all over the place and something that is a conversation every year, but for me has felt like something that's kind of dominated discourse this year has been conversation on who should be the MVP. Right. And at the beginning of the season, when Embiid was bringing back, uh, a Shaq style of basketball and absolutely dominating the league. Everyone was like, Oh my God, Embiid needs to be the MVP. And then everyone looked at Jokic's numbers and they're like, wait, Jokic probably should be the MVP. And then the Lakers were like a top five offensive rating, top number one defensive rating. LeBron was their best player. And everyone said, well, LeBron should be the MVP. And then Steph got MVP buzz for like a week. And currently Dame is getting MVP buzz and, but everyone keeps throwing in all, the, all these candidates left and right. And so today we are going to try to answer the question, what makes an MVP and what should make the MVP of the NBA? Riley, you feel very strongly about this. I, I, I have so many takes and I've been uh, excited to talk about this for, for ages. So Play it all out there. Give it to I, me. If I, if I go on too long. Okay. Point number one. MVP is inherently a dumb name for this award, except if you consider why it's named this way. And I know that makes no sense, so let me explain. Most valuable player means absolutely nothing. It, it, what, what does that mean? Nobody knows. And that's why we devote so much energy to this award, and that's why we can never agree and I, I don't know if I'm conspiratorial about this necessarily, but I think there is a reason that the league or the Writers Association or I, I, whoever you know is in charge of defining this award and determining who gets awards has not defined the terms of MVP more closely and, and more, more critically. And I think that's because they are here for all the debate. They are here for the hashtag content that is generated. They are here for the interest that this award generates because nobody can agree. And so as much as I am frustrated that we do not have a consensus about what valuable, it, you know, it really comes down to valuable because most in player are obviously self-evident. Um, I, I think that, you know, I, the, the way that the conversation goes a lot of the time, it ends up being that we're not even debating which player is more X or Y or Z, right? We're just debating what, which X, Y, or Z best fits into the history of this award and what the word means and what the word valuable means, right? Like we, we spend all our energy debating our personal kind of uh, categorization and, and uh, rules about this award. And we, if we could all agree on one set of criteria, like the criteria, there would not be nearly as much debate because I think if people are reasonably you know, smart and reasonably logical and reasonably willing to like put in the work to watch and pay attention and, and consider, uh, you know, sources of information. That's a big, if if, Riley. A, that's a big yes, ask. <laughs> it is. It is. That's true. But if we all have the same criteria, I think there would be very little drama here because it, to me in every season, right. If, if we pick a different criteria, it's pretty, pretty clear cut. You know, there might be a couple years where, okay. You know, that, uh, that year where James, James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Russell Westbrook and LeBron, we're all kind of all vying for an award. 
you know, that, that is the closest race that I can remember. Um, but otherwise, you know, if you, if you pick a specific criteria, the person that best fits that criteria jumps out in front. And so I, I understand why this is and why it hasn't been changed, but I do get frustrated that we debate criteria more than we date debate the seasons that individual players are having. What do you think about that, Nolan? You, you make, you make a lot of really good points and uh, the criteria that you're, you're exactly right. That if we created criteria, the conversation would get a lot more boring and a lot more straightforward, you know, and the phrasing of the award makes it impossible for criteria to be developed. And so the thing that always stands out to me about these MVP debates is sort of the question, how much does narrative matter, right? Like, is, is this an award that can be or should be won year after year after year if the criteria remains the same for you? Or should narrative play in and say, well, this person uh, won the MVP last year and they're about equal, maybe a little bit more than this newer person Maybe we should give them the award this time. What 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 do you think? What do you think about the question of narrative and how much? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, so I I'm gonna have a kind of contrarian take on this. I think to a lot of people, you know, uh, when you reach a certain level of interest in basketball, there comes to be this great uh, hatred of narrative in terms of award voting, right? Like it doesn't make sense. And I I kind of take the opposite position because I feel. Um, you know, this is this is something that Rachel Nichols, who you know, rightly or wrongly, is is pretty polarizing on some parts of NBA fandom, and who I believe, if you you know, set aside anything else about her and listen to the the monologues that she does and the, the some of the questions that she asks in interviews, and especially the way that she's able to cultivate relationships with players, is one of the better NBA media people out there because she's very good at her job. If you know, if you're willing to to really just focus on the output of her work um, and less the, the cringy moments when she was hosting the draft or, you know, uh, any other, any other, you know, superfluous kind of thing. And so yeah, she un- has this- undoubtedly she's, she's definitely one of the best, most successful NBA media people in the league. That is absolutely straightforward. And I think to sort of like cut straight to the point of what you were sort of beating around the bush with is a lot of people in our country have a problem with her takes because she's a beautiful woman. And a lot of yep. people who follow basketball from different parts of our country and different walks of life, they enjoyed her. At, we've had this conversation where we said they enjoyed her because she was pretty. And then she started to actually come out with really well-developed, strong opinions that was contrary to theirs. And they weren't able to adjust. They wanted her to stay as the sideline reporter that they wanted to, to look at, which neither of us endorse. And both of us have incredible amounts of respect for what she is able to do and accomplish. For me, it's especially the, the way that players respect her and acknowledge totally. uh, her legitimacy. But anyway, one, one of you you were talking sure. about one of her arguments here. Yeah. Yeah. So, so she, she has long had this, this uh, vendetta, this personal, uh, I don't know, uh, holy war, I guess she, I would say, 
against the NBA MVP award. And, you know, she talks about this with Zach and, and Howard Beck a lot. And her point is that when we talk about this award, there's two things that we're really talking about, right? Who was the best player and who had the best season? And so it, it gets into this point where we look back and we go, why doesn't LeBron James have eight or nine MVP awards? He has been the best player in the NBA basically since his third, fourth year, maybe even his second year. Like if you, if you lined everybody up and you picked, who do I want to take me to a championship? Who do I want to win one game? He's been that answer for basically as long as I've been a basketball fan and even longer, right? Like he has been that guy, but he only has four MVP awards. And so if people use the MVP, you know, this gets back to our early conversation about legacy and, and career accolades and, and being able to use awards as a historical kind of record book. If you look back, you say it's, it's absurd that the best player in the world, the best player in the league only has four MVP awards. And so her argument is that we need to split this. We need to have an award for whoever the best player in the league is. And if it's LeBron and he deserves it 15 years in a row, you give him that award 15 years in a row. And then we have a separate award to say, Steph Curry had the greatest offensive season of all time. He deserves an award to commemorate this specific season where he outperformed any other, other thing. So all of this is a, my way of answering you. And I, I firmly believe in that. And I'll go further uh, down the line as we, we talk about this to say that I think it should even be split into three different awards. Um, which gets a little absurd, but all of this is is in support of the idea that I think using narrative in terms of an individual season, I think that's valid if we are going to give an award just for a single season, right? Like uh, this is a really really hot take, but when Russell Westbrook won that MVP for averaging a triple double the first time since anyone since Oscar Robertson, I to this day have no problems with that because I view I I view the MVP as the story of the season, right? Like I, I use it to go back and say 2015, 2016, that was the Warriors and that was Steph's year. And so it was, it was correct and right that he earned that MVP. When, you know, we go back to uh, Giannis this two years ago, right? Like he exploded, uh, Bud Budenholzer put him into a system that allowed him to, you know, just do everything. And he, he took a leap and the Bucks were the best regular season team. And I think it was right that he won the award because it, it spoke to the narrative of the season. The fact that we only have one award to do this best player in the league, best season, best statistical case, most impact on winning, that's where it becomes unfortunate. And that's where, yeah, maybe narrative shouldn't be a part of the issue. So I, I all of this to say, you know, to answer your question, if we were able to split this award and be a little bit more specific and, and define what we were giving, I would have no issue with narrative being a part of it. Okay, so in in this Rachel Nichols system that you're you're endorsing a little bit, just to clarify, yes, you have one award for best player in the league and one award essentially for narrative, right? Yeah, and, yeah, or or statistics or whatever, right? Like it's right. just one is the season and one is who is the undisputed best guy in the league, and so, so Michael Jordan would have ten of them, and LeBron would have twelve of that, whatever, right? Right. So can they be the same? Can, 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 would, can there be overlap there? Like, uh, uh, like, for example, the season that the Heat won 27 games and then the in a row and then the championship, right? Like, yes. 
LeBron yes. was the undisputed king of the world yes. in all senses of the word. So would you give it him both awards that year? Yes. Yes, I would. Um, I think the issue, this, this gets down to a, another problem that I have, which is voter fatigue. What the fuck is voter fatigue? That should not mean anything, right? Like the Giannis, let's say this year is averaging pretty close, maybe not quite the same level of impact, but pretty damn close to his first MVP season. The fact that he's won two in a row to me should mean nothing. This has nothing to do with, you know, the previous seasons, how many times you've had to vote for the same guy. I think it's frankly bullshit that we say, oh, you've been excellent. You've been the most statistically productive guy in the league for the last three years. Somehow you haven't managed to eclipse that further. Nobody else has caught up to you. And so we're just not going to give you this award anymore. And that's what happens to LeBron. That's why he doesn't have more MVPs. It happens to anyone who wins two in a row. We just write off their candidacy for the next year because we say voters are, are not going to even consider them, which to me, why? Why not? What? It shouldn't have to be like, what have you done for me lately? Or like, what, what's new, right? It should just be, what does this season mean? And what have you, what have you produced? And if it's worthy of recognition, it's worthy. Who cares? Yeah, a, b- a better way to rephrase voter fatigue, because the people who vote for the MVP are the upper echelon of media members, right? The people who follow this sport and worship this sport for a living, right? So those guys aren't fatigued to vote for the MVP. You ask any single one of them, and they will tell you it is an honor, right? So it, I, I wouldn't point, even label point. it as – it's called voter fatigue. I wouldn't label it as that more as I would – label it as narrative fatigue yes that's a great great way to put it yeah because most of the people in the media don't have the mvp vote right and most people in the media are just trying to generate clicks they're trying to generate content and views to their videos blogs podcasts whatever it is and so those people like, are they know that the general audience isn't going to want to hear about LeBron James winning MVP for the fourth straight year? They want they know that understand that narrative. And when we when we say narrative, we mean a story. We understand that America loves an underdog, and to have someone rise up continuously is part of what fuels that fandom of basketball. And so, whether whether or not that should impact the MVP is, is a, is a question that they never stopped to ask. And that's the question we're trying to ask right now is why does that impact it? It shouldn't impact that. You you said yourself, like, why the fuck does this matter? Yeah. And I I think you put that so beautifully. Like I can't even, I can't even thank you enough for like really getting my thoughts out there in a cohesive way, because to me, it's, you know, when, when we look back, like I said earlier, right? Like I don't look at all stars to look at someone's legacy, but I sure as hell look at all NBA and I sure as hell look at MVP because I think those are something where fans who, you know, don't pay a ton of attention or, or want to vote for their favorite player. Like a Clay Thompson got all-star votes this year, even though he hasn't played a game, whatever to me, right? Like I know that that's part of the situation, but I, I trust the media members who are picked to vote for MVP, to have a little bit more discretion to, like you said, to, to treat it as an honor and to put in a lot of time and the same with all NBA. Right. And so I, I do use this award as a calibrator of someone's career of 
of their their true basketball ability of where they stand in the pantheon and and the and the legacy of this sport and so for me for that to be impacted by people being bored let's let's call it what it is people are bored i think that's dumb and so i that's why i think rachel nichols point is great because if we were able to separate these things and have an award that still generated this conversation and you know, honored someone new and honored someone fresh and honored the narrative of the season. And we could use as a, as a history lesson, right? Like, okay, Russell Westbrook was the obsession of that season, right? He might have not have contributed the most to winning. He might not have been the best player. He might have stat padded the shit out of stuff. But to me, when I think back about that year, the thing that matters to me is that Westbrook was really clutch. He, you know, did a statistical feat that no one had seen in a long time. I acknowledge that he did it multiple years after that, which is why I wouldn't give him that. And I, I'd be fine not giving him that award anymore because it wasn't novel, right? It wasn't. And so I, I understand when like people say, you know, that's a, that's a frustrating way to make an argument. And so that actually you know, leads me to my, my kind of extremist take, which is I think we should divide this into three awards. Interesting. I think we should, I think we should have the narrative basically, you know, like who is the story of the season? Who was the best we, we could call it the player of the year, right? But like there's this college has the, the player of the year. The Heisman Trophy is basically the player of the year uh, for, for college football. I, I would give that award. I would give the, the best player in the league award so that LeBron or MJ or Kawhi or Kareem or whoever, right? Like, you know, they get that plowed and we're willing to do that over and over and over again because it, it's like a record keeper of – you know, as much as we all talk about this, we all think, I think we still all agree that LeBron is probably the best guy in the league right now, right? Like he's still yet to be dethroned. And so I don't know if that makes him MVP. Actually, I'd be frustrated if that earned him an MVP this season, but I think that's worthy of celebration. So those are two. And then I think the last one is where we actually get to debate value, which is the next part of this conversation that I want to have with you, which is like, how much did they contribute to winning? And I think that is entirely separate from who, was the best player this season, who had the best statistical case this season, who told the story of the season, who captured everyone's minds. Like, I think all three of those things are worthwhile to talk about, to write down and to, to give someone a trophy for, because I think they contribute to the growth and the health of the sport and they contribute to my enjoyment. I just don't, I think it's dumb that we try and do all three in one award because how could, how could we possibly? What say you to that absurd kind of, kind of position? Yeah, I, 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 you're, you're absolutely right, right? Like trying to fit those three things, the value of a player, the narrative of a player, and just who is damn good at the time, like trying to fit all those things into one award is impossible. And it's what brings us back to this same argument, the same debate every year. And there's basketball fans, uh, guys like Bill Simmons and uh, people who are even uh, a bit older who are still a part of, NBA media who've been having this debate since the seventies and eighties, right? Every year we have the same debate every year. We have the the same debate every year. And so when you and I are elected sports czars, Riley, and we're able to uh, influence all uh, sports rules, we basically just replace all commissioners and owners and players union as the all powerful sports beings in, in uh, America. I think we should institute that, that three pronged, uh, that, that three-pronged award system. Now, we have a little ways to go before uh, getting to that position. 
So I think you have we should me, try to focus in. We, we should focus in on that last point that you were making of trying to understand the value of a player because sure. for now we're stuck with the MVP, right? And if well, it's yeah, before before we go there, I just want I want to ask you one question: If yeah. you were to create those three awards, and only one of them could be continued to call the MVP, like the MVP award, the which one do you think most deserves? to keep that legacy and keep that tradition and be tied to all the previous winners? Like which is most representative of how things have been done historically? I think that it would be the award that focuses on the value that a player brings to, to their team, you know, because um, for me, like my, I I wrote, I wrote this down before the episode. I knew I needed to, to have a definition of MVP because we're stuck with this award as it is, right? Yeah. We, we've got it. And uh, for me, my definition of the MVP, so for us to continue on this age-old debate, for me, I think the most valuable player is the player that most positively impacts whether his team wins or loses, Okay. And I can I can break that down further, and I and I will will in a second. But I think that's why, for me, the award of those three that should be connected to all the prior awards is because that's what most valuable player means to me personally. Do you have a totally. different answer? Um, not necessarily. Although I do think that narrative has been such a huge historical part, right? Like. It, I would I would immediately rule out the uh, best guy in the league award because even if we talk we talk about that and that gets people in like care to the sea, I don't think it's ever been the reason that someone was picked. So to me, it's between those two. And I, I do think that since like voter fatigue or, oh, Katie left. And so Westbrook's care to the sea is better because he has to carry this team to a sixth seed. That was That was an argument that people made. And that was, you know, he, he ended up winning that award. I, you know, I hate to keep coming back to this, this example, but it was such a lightning rod and something that still gets talked about today. And so I think there's such a strong tradition of narrative being involved that I, I might lean towards letting the MVP be tied to that story of the year, player of the year, who had the best season, who had the best stats, because stats, that's another part of it that we can talk about. You know, those have, those have influenced people's people's votes but yes i let's let's move on and let's let's talk about how we define valuable because i think or or impact winning because i think that's really that is what what this all comes down to and i think that's a great definition yeah yeah i mean and and you 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 make a great point that like in in my mind i would want to connect it to the value of a player award We'll have to come up with uh, names for these awards. If you're listening out there and you ha- yeah. have a creative bone in your body and you want to want to come up with official names for those three awards, make sure to to toss it out there and shout us out. But but yeah, the the narrative is undeniable, and that's how how the award has been done. But let's 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 talk about the state. We talk about the state of the league all the time. Let's talk about the state of the league. Let's talk yes, about exactly yes, yes. what MVP means to us right now. So for me, like I said, my working definition of most valuable player is the player that most positively impacts whether his team wins or loses. 
Okay. Do you, do you have a differing definition or something you want to add to that? No, no. I, I think that's pretty, pretty damn perfect. Um, yeah, I think to me, the big question then becomes, and this is, I guess, the last little rant that I want to have about MVP is that MVP is really a team award. Uh, that sounds crazy, but I'm going to, I'm going to break this down for you, right? This year, Steph, Steph Curry is basically recreating his, his 2015-2016 offensive season. He is almost shooting 50% for the field. His true shooting is within 0.1 percentage points of, of where he was when he was scoring 30 points a game on the best efficiency that anybody had ever seen. He would be on pace to break his three-point record if this was a full season, right? He's having an unbelievable offensive year. And I think he's gotten stronger as a defender. You know, he might not be averaging the two steals that led the league in 2015, 2016, but like statistically, and by all means, like his direct impact on winning, I don't think has changed at all. And yet, when we look at those two seasons, back then, the Warriors started the season 24 and 0. They were destroying everyone. And this year, they're middling. I think they're 16 and 15, maybe even 16 and 16 right now. And so to me, you know, a lot of the time we look at, we look at individuals' performance and we ask how much are they contributed to winning. And at the end of the day, you still have to be a top two seed. Like without, you know, with the, the weird exception of Westbrook, if you're not from a top two seed in either conference, you are not ever winning MVP. And that's just, that's the tradition. That's how it's been. And so to me, what that means is that MVP is really a team award because it's picking the best guy from a team that has the number of wins. And so if you, if we just took Steph's candidacy from last time and said, well, he's doing the same thing. He was unanimous last time. What's changed? The only thing that's changed is the teammates around him. And so to me, that's not, that's not a reflection of how much he's impacting winning, but he's not going to win this award. And I don't think anyone is seriously going to consider him for it right now. Like he'll be in the conversation, but I don't know if he'll even make a top five ballot. And so that's why I get, I, you know, I used to be the guy who said, you know, oh, team success matters. Like it really, that's, that's the differentiator. Like we, we care about winning. We need to reward winning. But if this is going to be given to a single person and not a, a group of people, I'm not sure how we can consider team record in this conversation, you know, because the team record is as much about all the, the collective parts and how they fit together if, if a guy doing the exact same thing in two different seasons can lead to such a dramatic difference in winning percentage, then to me, winning percentage is, is determined by, by the group and by the, the quality of depth and quality of rotation players and, and bench guys and, and the supporting cast more even than it is by a single person. I don't know. What say, what say you to that? I agree wholeheartedly. I have always been frustrated by uh, team success being factored into the MVP debate. My One of my favorite MVP victories of all time was Andre Dawson, who won an MVP in the MLB while playing for the Chicago Cubs, a team that did not make the playoffs in the year that he won the MVP. And that is one of my favorite MVP awards because it was just so, he was just so unquestionably the most valuable player that if you took him away from the Cubs, the Cubs would have gone from a non-playoff team to the absolute basement, to cellar dwellers, right? But because of him, he had the biggest positive impact on winning out of any player in the MLB that season. And I think that this season in the NBA 
is a great test drive for this for this definition, right? Because uh, if you look at this definition, the player that most positively impacts whether his team wins or loses. I think an easy retort that could be made would be like, oh, well, you look at from from these uh, Warriors teams of the last few years, right? Like having someone like Andre Iguodala was a huge reason that they were able to win games. Or you look at the Bucks of the last two years, Chris Middleton was such a huge reason. Like without him, the Bucks aren't going to be winning nearly as many games, right? Shout out Chris Middleton. What a what an underrated underrated player. Probably the most underrated player in the NBA. I would but, agree. I would agree. Love that guy. Yeah, but he so he had an incredible positive impact on whether his team won or lost, but he did not have the most positive impact of whether his team won or lost, right? He didn't even have the most positive impact out of anyone on his team. That was Giannis, right? Now, extrapolate that outwards to this season, right? You look at a guy like Embiid. Joel Embiid is unquestionably demolishing fools this year. And he is playing on one of the best designed rosters coached by one of the NBA's top-level coaches. Right, he's playing with prob like probable All Star and All NBA candidate Ben Simmons. He's surrounded by Seth Curry, one of the best shooters in the league. Danny Green, who may not be who he once was, but can can do a thing or two. Some some promising rookies and Tobias Harris Tobias being Harris one of the one of the most un undersung one of the most unsung third guys on a team, right? So Embiid has a huge positive impact on his team winning, and his team is not nearly as good without him as they are with him. But does he have more of a positive impact on his team winning than Dame Lillard? And my answer to that is no. Because what Dame, the Blazers are currently like the fourth seed in the West, and their second and third best player, have, their best player has been out for two months, or their, their third best player has been out for two months. Their second best player has been out for a month. And Dame is climbing. The Blazers are climbing in the standings. So for me, Dame Lillard, who doesn't really have a snowball's chance in hell of winning the MVP right now, he would get my vote over Joel Embiid. Because while he doesn't fill out the box score like a bruising center as Embiid does, I don't think I can identify a single player in the league who more positively impacts winning of his team than Damian Lillard. Sure. Right. And so, and I, so this I, is where yeah. we can start, this is where we can start to get into, into the debates and into the conversations of like who actually has more of that positive impact on winning this guy or that. So, guy. so before we get there, um, there's like a, a counterfactual to, to an argument that I just made and that you made a little bit that I, I want to address, which is the idea of floor raisers and ceiling raisers. And basically, you know, it's it's the point that there's a ton of dudes out there, let's say a Zach Levine, who actually, you know, this is what I wanted to bring up earlier, is like, I think I saw a stat today that when he plays with uh, Patrick Williams and some of the other young guys on his team, they're terrible. And when he plays with Thaddeus Young, just a competent dude, they've been plus like 100 or something, you know, absurd. And so I think, you know, when you were holding the, the Bulls, record against him earlier I, I wanted to to say this and and say I think like what he's doing offensively and, and as a playmaker too like he's become a much more unselfish player and I think 
I wouldn't hold that against him because I think there's evidence that if he gets enough, you know, uh, good talent around him, he, he is contributing to winning. Anyway, anyway. Um, but the, the point of bringing it up, right, is that there's a ton of guys out there who can take uh, a zero win team and make them a 10 win team or a 15 minute team or 20 win team or a 30 win team, right? Like that we, is what we call floor raising. There are fewer people who can take a 50 win team and make them a 60 win team. Or in Kevin Durant and Steph Curry's case a couple of years ago, take a 60 win team and make them a 67 win team. And there's, there's uh, empirical evidence that shows that the more wins you get, the harder it is to add that extra win of value. And so that's why in general, I, as like a basketball fan and then someone who thinks about the game care much more about someone's ability to, to impact winning at the higher level, right? Like to do, to, to add those additional harder wins than I do the basement level wins. All of that being said, it, it so uh, to me, that doesn't, it doesn't, erase Dan's case it doesn't erase Steph's case it doesn't erase Nikola Jokic's case because uh, under the criteria that we're talking about and your definition I think they fully belong in the conversation it's it's just it's hard to measure that because they don't have 51 talent around them so ideally we would be able to take all these guys play them on their current teams and then play them on a team with a stacked roster kind of like the Lakers have you know they've got a lot of really good players down there and we would be able to see how much they impact the bottom end of the winning column and the top end of the winning column. And I think that would be, that would be perfect. Obviously we can't, we can't do that. And so it becomes a little bit more of a subjective thing, but I think it is important to acknowledge that there's a difference in, in impacting winning at, at the top end and, and taking a, a conference finals team to, to a championship versus a lottery team to the eighth seed, you know? Totally. And that that's a, a really important argument to acknowledge, especially because you could throw that right back at us and say, well, Embiid has raised the uh, Sixers ceiling to number one seed in the East. and doesn't look like they'll, they might be relinquishing that anytime soon, barring a, a hot streak from uh, the Celtics, Bucks, Heat, or other struggling teams in the East out there. Right. So his ceiling has been bumped up. up he bumps them to a number one seed. But it, it, it feels cheap for me to say, all right, well, best player on the best team wins the award. Yep. You and know? I don't, and, yeah, I don't agree with that argument either. Yeah. I just, I wanted that, I wanted to play, I guess. You know. Totally. That, that's why I'm saying it's, it's, a, it's an important argument to address because got that, like, it, it, it's very easy to have. And there are plenty of guys who are, have MV, MVP votes who will say, look, that what you're, you're saying that a uh, positive impact on whether a team wins or loses, like Embiid has that clearly. And I'm like, and then we'd be forced to, to go about it that way. I, I see. Yeah. I think the, the, the response to that and how I would, that would argue against that. The point I just brought up is that it's not, to me, it's not inherently a player's fault that their roster, you know, doesn't allow them to elevate a 50 win team to a 60 win team because they only have 30 win talent surrounding them and they, they can only elevate that 15 wins or whatever. And so I, I think to me, the, the answer to this a little bit, just, it just ends up being like, what do they do with what they have in front of them? And maybe when I look at, you know, stats on a really terrible team, I do downgrade them a little bit, right? Like I, I say, you know, 
okay, to bring it back to Zach Levine, yeah, he's having an amazing offensive year. And maybe we have to, you know, view him with the opposite of rose-colored glasses a little bit because he's getting more opportunities. He's, you know, playing in a system that is designed to support him and and whatnot. And so that's that's how I would try and rectify this, right? Is to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna acknowledge that it's not somebody's fault, but also acknowledge that they might be outperforming, at least statistically, what they would be doing with better teammates and fewer shots, fewer opportunities. And, and really being in different, different levels of competition. So we've been bringing up a lot of the, these arguments and we're, we've, been start, we've been having these grand discussions on, on value and these floor raisers, ceiling raisers and whatnot. So let's, let's get down into some examples, okay? Let, let, let's get down into... Uh, the actual MVP candidates this year, at least the people who've been floated as MVP candidates and quickly, as quickly as we can go through them to see if we can generate a, an MVP of the season so far. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to toss out uh, who I think to be the MVP candidates. And if I'm missing anyone, let me know. All right. LeBron. Yep. Kawhi. Steph? Yep. Dame? Yep. Joel Embiid? Yep. Nikola Jokic? Totally. And those six are the six names that I, I feel comfortable with including in the conversation. Is there anyone that I'm missing? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I might put Giannis in there um, just because his, his impact might be down a little bit and the wins are certainly down for the uh, Bucks. but I think there's ways to explain a lot of that. And I also think he's still probably the premier two-way, two-way force in the league um, from a versatility and whatnot point. So I, I would have him in there. I'd, I'd be comfortable having, having him on there as well. His defensive impact is still game-breaking. And uh, he's played in all 30 of his team's games so far. Yes. And he's still averaging 28 points, still averaging 11, 12 rebounds, six assists. The dude is still a force to be reckoned with. I was really hoping Luca would be on this list at the beginning of the year, but I I can't make a single argument for why he would be. uh, Before we we go a little bit further, maybe maybe we'll just do this as we – break down these guys, but I do want to talk about defense um, because I think it's something that is especially, especially in the MVP award treated very weirdly, right? Like it was a huge reason that Giannis won. And at the same time, when uh, certain offensive players like James Harden have won, it's something we say their offense is so great that it makes up for whatever they do on defense. And so if I was being honest, I, I think the award should probably have more two-way impact, but I also recognize that that's not, you know, where this league is at and where the sport is at. And and there is more value in offense because I read a great piece might've been by Seth part now um, talking about why, you know, offense is more important, namely that it dictates everything, right? Like defense, no matter what you do, you still have to react to the offensive player. And if defense schemes something to take away an offense, 
your presence and your offensive ability has already impacted the game because they are they are changing what they want to do and they're they're making adjustments and conceding certain things elsewhere to take to take a, a stab at trying to slow you down. And so I I I firmly believe that we don't talk about defense enough and it, it deserves to be elevated, but I, I do understand where people come from when they say offense is a little bit more important and you can justify an offensive first player over someone who is complete on either end. Yeah, that's absolutely important to bring up and is definitely going to count in this conversation about some of these guys. So uh, I think, I think the way, the way to go through this list is to start with some of the more dark horse candidates and then uh, jump to the front runners yeah, and then and then talk about the uh, the or maybe jump to the fringe guys, and then go to the front runners. Talk about why we don't have those fringe guys as front runners, and then we decide who those front runners are. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds great to me. All right. So the first the first sort of uh, dark horse candidate uh, that jumps out to me off this this list of of seven dudes that we have is Kawhi, mm-hmm. where he is quietly having an incredibly productive season. He is still quietly one of the better defenders in the league and has not taken nearly as much time for rest as a lot of people would have guessed coming in to this season. But I think quietly has, uh, is the most important definer of, of what he's been doing where the Clippers are really good. And I think Ty Lue is a really good coach. And just by playing with Paul George and playing with a second unit that can run with guys like Lou Williams and Reggie Jackson and Zubach, right? And I think Serge Ibaka was a great addition for them. I think that while Kawhi is a phenomenal player and a phenomenal reason for the Clippers' success, there are other guys on this list that, more directly impact their their teams winning and losing because of the system and surrounding cast that he has around him. What what do you think? I I'm I'm right there with you. And I I think he's shooting only 55% effective field goal percentage, which to me is is a little bit low if you want to be really up there in like the elite tier of offensive contributors. Um, obviously an incredible mid-range mid-range player and, and someone who, like you said, is, has not rested nearly as much. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say about Kawhi. Um, I mean, his, his, his numbers look fucking incredible. And, and that's the thing is his numbers are incredible and he is an incredible basketball player and will be on second team, all NBA at the lowest this year, yeah. you know? And He's still a top three guy for pick someone to win you a basketball game. He's still a yeah. top three guy for that. But by, by our definition, he does have an, one of the highest positive impacts on his teams, winning or losing. But so far, there have been other people with more sure. of a positive impact. Sure. We're looking for the guy with the most positive impacts. Sure. So Kawhi yeah, is phenomenal. Probably a, a top three contender for your award of best player in the world. Yeah. But for for the basis of our conversation is not 
going to be an MVP. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking. I'm looking at like playmaking, right? Like he is the primary playmaker as far as I'm aware on on the Clippers, and he's still only averaging five less than five assists. You know, like he he's gotten better at that job, but I'm not sure if I'm willing to give him credit for you know orchestrating that offense to a super high level. And I think that's something that is important that other guys, like you said, are doing much better. Yeah. Another guy I have as a dark horse MVP candidate is Giannis. Just because he is reproducing a lot of those numbers that we've uh, talked about in years past, his defense is absolutely still at a very high level, but both in the win loss column, his presence is no longer affecting the team as it has in the years past and in the scheme, right? Where he's being asked to do a little bit more or uh, not, excuse me, a little bit less now that Drew Holiday is there and Chris Middleton is stepping up later in games. So Giannis is still for me, one of the premier players in the NBA, but, and it's the same, the same thing as Kawhi. He's got, impact on both sides of the floor, but his overall impact is eclipsed by other people in the league right now. No, I, and I think there's a, I said earlier in the podcast, there's a really interesting explanation um, about that, which is basically that Mike Budenholzer has started to finally be creative. And that has meant used Giannis as a roller, which uh, I mean, I don't mean to denigrate big men, but it's just inherently less shot creation and less of a more challenging role, right? And so he's do- doing that. They're they're switching a little bit, and that's caused the team to to not perform quite as well. And they're trying, uh, you know, they've moved people to the dunker spot. Um, and so I think you're dead on, right? Like there, I think there's there's reasons that he's not doing these things, but that that doesn't change the fact that he's not. And I, the other point I want to make is his free throw percentage and his three point percentage have just completely tanked. Right. And I think that for a guy who draws a ton of fouls and that's a huge way that he generates value and impacts winning for him not to be cashing in on those and for him to, you know, take threes and and not be making them at all is really a point against him. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm looking now at his per 36 numbers and his per 36 numbers are down from his past two seasons. Yeah. So uh, while his counting stats still are, are similar, his per 36 numbers are down. So the, the impact isn't quite there. And I think we can comfortably cross him off the list. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to see if you agree with me on my last dark horse candidate. I knew this was coming. I knew this was coming. It's fine. Tell me why Steph Curry is not a dark horse candidate and actually a higher level candidate um i think because without him on the floor the warriors are unwatchable and with him on the floor they've been really really good like his his offensive rating if you give me just a second to pull it up um is is absurd for the the level of players that he's playing with um offensive yeah. Okay. So this year he has 120 offensive rating, which is absolutely elite. Um, defensive rating 111, which for the the way that we've seen 
teams uh, or the league, you know, go to, to a higher tempo and, and less defense, like that used to be kind of bad. And now that's pretty good. Um, so for a guy who we, we associate with, you know, being all offense and whatnot, he's been playing harder and stronger and better defense than I've ever seen. Um, really, you know, being asked to defend uh, better players without play there, um, doing quite a, quite a good job, very positionally sound. I think his, his just shooting splits are absurd. You know, he's at 48% uh, from the field and 42 on just an absurd difficulty. That's the other thing, just, you know, the difficulty because he's creating everything for himself or, or having to like mind meld with Draymond to get open. He has been uh, taking harder shots, I think, than even in his last MVP season. And I think he's single-handedly dragging this team to competency and, and beyond like they, they beat the Clippers and they, they beat the Lakers and they have been able to get momentum when he's out the floor. Um, and I think without him, the team becomes a joke. They become that 15 and 50 team, maybe even worse um, because they've got all the guys who don't really fit. And so the amount of, the amount of effort that he's putting in to make this team competent is something that I've really never seen. And I, I think it's impressive. And I think, his his impact is so huge, even if it isn't resulting in the team, you know, getting up there into the upper echelons. I, I, I do believe that he deserves consideration for MVP. So would you consider him more of a fringe candidate or more of a front runner? I wouldn't put him in a front runner because I think, you know, Jokic is, to me, we'll get into him in a second, um, doing very much the same thing. And, and Denver's similarly lost without him. Um, they've been slightly better um, with Jokic on the floor, but you know I think the shot making that Steph is doing, the the numbers, the consistency in in having an amazing uh, plus minus, I think to me that that does put him in. If we're doing you know just pure value, that doesn't make him a front runner, but that puts him as a as a solid candidate. I would I would hope that he ends up in top five at the end of the year based on at least what he's done so far. That's fair. Yeah, so Steph marks our first entry into the fringe because I think okay. in terms of in terms of dark horses, the rest of, the rest of these guys on this list definitely don't qualify. So I that was an excellent case for Steph, by the way. I, the last, I yeah, the, the last thing is he's leading the team in rebounding, if I am correct. Which what the fuck. Yeah, and and for for everyone out there who is conditioned to hate Steph in a lot of ways, I encourage you to hop on YouTube and find the some of the highlights of his 20-ish point games and some of the highlights of his 40 and 50-ish point games because the the 40 and 50 point games are mind-melting. And the even the 20 point games where he seems to struggle for a lot of the game, when the Warriors end up winning those, it's because he does some incredible high difficulty things in the last four minutes of the game. And the last thing I forgot to mention is he's creating shots for everyone else, right? Like he's the only weapon. He's getting box and one, and he's still getting Juan Toscano Anderson, a former Mexican League MVP. Um, but you know, not somebody who any other team really wanted. He's getting him wide open dunks because teams are still so scared. So yes, yes, enough, enough Steph though. No, Steph, Steph, Steph is a phenomenal basketball player, and I understand uh, the play people who are less 
of a fan just because of oversaturation, but I don't under, I don't think it's an actual critique to have on him in in that way. So the next the next guy on our list that, that I I think falls into a similar category that Steph does that you just mentioned is Nikola Jokic. Another person who when you watch them uh in, in highlights and whatnot, you're wondering how is this possible? And the weight that he lost in the quarantine period last year seems to have unlocked a little bit of that extra conditioning we were hoping he would have. And that extra level of defensive and offensive uh, potential that he's beginning to reach. So do you have him as a fringe candidate or a front runner? No, I have him as a front runner. Um, okay. I think I think he deserves, you know, he might not be quite the two-way player that he and beat is or his other competitors, but I think Jokic, you know, he's shooting over 40% from three this year, which is a massive uptick. And he's completely changed his mindset. You know, if the, I, I've watched a lot of him because I have him on multiple fantasy teams um, and I just love the way he plays. Um, and he, he really has gotten aggressive like he needs to. And he is hitting things that I don't think any other player can hit. And like, especially the way that he shoots, it's just these balls float in the air. You know, maybe that's a subjective thing, but he's taking ridiculously difficult shots. He's continued to be the possibly the greatest big man passer of all time. And he, he's got the right attitude now, which is, you know, he's leveraging his scoring threat into to offense and he's, he's committed to scoring. And I think, that has taken him to the next level. He he leads the league in win shares, uh, box plus minus, like every single advanced stat, which you know we can we can take as gospel, we can leave. But I think you know, it's undeniable the impact he's having on the Nuggets because without him, they just they they are incompetent. You know, Jamal Murray, uh, bless his heart, just cannot put it together in the regular season for whatever reason, and. Um, you know, a lot of their other guys have uh, are great players, but a little bit flawed. And so I think he he makes that entire team go from bottom of the barrel to okay, they could they could do something this year, even if their record doesn't quite reflect it right now. Yeah, for me, I what have you Jokic think? as as a fringe candidate of my own for a lot of the mm-hmm. same reasons that Steph is a fringe candidate because. And uh, at, on on, sur- I, on surface level, this may look like I am banging the team success drum, but I want to emphasize that I'm not. I going back to our definition of MVP that that uh, we generated is, is the player that most positively impacts whether his team wins or loses. Right? Steph has been phenomenal. Jokic has been phenomenal, doing things on the court that no one else in the league is doing, and their teams are both in the bottom tier of the Western Conference playoff rankings as of right now. They've been floating around 500 the entire season. Now, if you remove Steph or Jokic, they immediately become lottery teams with no chance of uh, even making the play-in tournament, let alone make some, do some damage in the playoffs. But for me, there are still a few other people on this list that have the uh, – uh, just that much more of a positive impact on whether their team wins or loses this year. And so do I think Jokic is amazing? Yes. Just like I think Steph is amazing, but I also 
want to uh want want to highlight how this could change for Steph and Jokic if their team goes on an absolute tear and they end up the three seed, right? And the team coalesces around their brilliance, then I think that might bump them up to front runners. But for now, there are other people who are doing more with just as little as as those guys are. That and might, those that players might... would, yeah. Those those, but who are who are those players? Yeah. So for me, my front runners are LeBron, Embiid, and Dame. Okay, because I, I want to push this because I think only one of those guys has a supporting cast that's comparable to Denver or to Golden State, right? Like, the, to me, the quality of the players in Philadelphia and Los Angeles, you know, even with Anthony Davis out, like, there are some really, really great veterans there. And like we already mentioned, Tobias and Danny and all this, you know, so I, I buy that when it comes to Dame and I'm, I'm not going to argue with you there, but I think for me, it's tough to like swallow that, that argument applied to at least to those other two front runners. So would you consider LeBron and Embiid front runners or would you bump them down into the fringe? I might bump LeBron to fringe, you know, I think. Embiid, no, for sure. I think Embiid deserves to be in there. I just, I would like to hear a different argument, I guess, for that. Um, but I think LeBron, like without AD, they've lost a number of games recently. Um, and I think he he has really seeded the, the the most impactful role on that team to AD. If AD's numbers are down, you know, like he, he's definitely playing at a different level, a little bit lower level than I think he has in the past. Um, and I think this year we're finally starting to see that transition of power, right? And I just think he's he's helped, you know, which has always been the way he plays, right? But he's helped by the quality of those around him more than than anybody else, maybe save and beat. All right, I How hear you. How does that ya. sit with you? I hear you. Uh, for me, it's just it's just phenomenal to continue. Uh, to watch LeBron average a triple double, which, which is what he's doing right now sure. at at a, age thirty six, and I I st- I think there there may be some of that balance uh, balance of power shifting, but LeBron is still the engine that makes that makes the whole thing work. Sure, you know, sure. and his cerebral power and uh, his playmaking abilities, I think. Like and watching Lakers games, like AD is more like when he gets his, it, it's his turn to get his, you know. Yeah, and LeBron is the one who still decides that it's his turn. Okay, well, so then I guess this is the part that that like I don't uh, agree with in terms of his candidacy is I don't think his age should matter. Like him doing whatever he's doing, great. Leave the age out of it, you know, because I think to me that's that's a narrative that that that's not it just it's a narrative that doesn't make sense to me i guess right that's fair that's fair i understand i understand like the the rise of a player or the the story but i think it's not you know it's age is natural age is something that like nobody can control and it doesn't Uh you know it's not really it doesn't make him a better player because he's doing it at this age it just makes it more impressive and I yeah. don't think we're 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 gauging on impressive. We're engaging on on quality and value. Yeah, 
I, I would I would agree that that was a mistake to mention his age because that is that is purely <laughs> narrative based. That is purely narrative based. Uh, it it would have been he, his candidacy would have been a lot more stronger three weeks ago when the Lakers yep. were still exactly. at uh, the number one defensive rating and the uh, number five offensive rating. They've dropped all the way to 17th on offensive rating, but they're on still offense, first right. on defensive Which rating. Is, so that might speak a little bit more to the supporting cast compared to the... Right. If Which, LeBron yeah, was still managing to keep them at a top five offensive, then I think that would strengthen his candidacy. So I'd be... At this point, I... I You've won me over. I'd agree dropping okay, LeBron okay. down into the fringe, into the fringe status. Yeah, because I, I just think, like, he is, as much as he's a great defender, like, he is still known for his offensive exploits and his ability to orchestrate a team. And I think defense is even more so, like, a collective effort. And so, right, like, as much as you can be a shutdown, dude, Kawhi's been defensive player of the year worthy on some not great defenses. Um, or like Rudy Gobert, right? Like that, that is a different question to me than offense. Offense, you can as an individual impact that a ton. And so for them to slip that way, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. So yeah, cool. Right. So dropping LeBron down to fringe leaves us with, with three dudes left. We've already talked about Jokic. Yeah. So Embiid and Dame. Do you want to quickly give the case for Embiid? Yeah, I mean, I think he's just finally figured out what it is he needs to do. Um, and that part of that has been surrounded by the right players to allow him to do that. Uh, like you mentioned, Doc being a very good coach and getting shooting just lets him feast. I, I believe his three-point attempts are down. Um, if you give me one second. Yeah, will... his, his three-point attempts are down by a, a, a half attempt compared to last season a full attempt compared to the season before but his field goal per- his three point percentage is up yeah, yeah the highest it's ever been before was was uh in an extended season was 33 percent, and he's shooting 40 percent right now yeah and so i think that's to me that's one of the keys to his candidacy is that he's gotten smarter and he's gotten better right like he's he's doing what he's good at and not doing what he's bad at and that is a huge part of winning, right? It's like knowing your strengths and weaknesses, leveraging your talent. Um, and he just, he continues to, to grow as someone who came very late to the game. And so I, I'm, I'm fully on board. It's been cool to see the Sixers finally figure something out and, and be the team that everyone thought they could be for a very long time. And I think that, you know, in this case, we can attribute a lot of that to their best player finally understanding how to leverage himself and leverage his, his talent. Yeah. Into into impact on winning. Very well said. And just watching him play is is a delight. Watching a man that large, he's seven foot yeah. tall, 280 pounds. The league is like the, the largest dominant player in the last 10 years is LeBron. Right. And so for MB to come in here and put up these numbers and have that sort of positive effect as a center is really enjoyable to watch and that doesn't necessarily affect his his rating that's again more of like a a narrative thing but that's just a comment as like a basketball fan you know it's, yeah, it's like totally. what he's doing is fun 
Yep. And I, I think it's it's a testament to like patience, right? Like he didn't play two years start. And I think this is a good thing for everybody out there to remember when you have a favorite player uh, or, or a rookie, right? It's like, we don't know what they can become. And we all jump too quickly on deciding that this is their ceiling, this is the limit, or they're never going to get here. I certainly did. You know, I thought Joel was just never going to reach this level um, because there were so many years where we heard that same thing, right? It's like, if he puts it together. And at some point I started to say, okay, when does the if become just a hypothetical that, that it's not real, uh, realistic? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm super, super excited for the long suffering Philadelphia 76ers fan that they can, they can enjoy this and the best trash talker, the best, one of the best personalities in the league gets to get to have some dominance to go along with it. It's just exciting. So the last guy on this list that we have, that we haven't talked about yet is the guy who for me right now, and I don't think this will be the case at the end of the season, but for me right now, my choice for MVP, which has been kind of like building a little bit of buzz on the internet over the last few days Mm-hmm. has been Damian Lillard. And the reason the reason for that being is his numbers, while they're not quite at the level that they were when he was the bubble MVP, they're close. They, the, in order for the Blazers to be the number four seed comfortably, the number four seed in the West, right? Like they've needed him to go absolutely supernova. And he's doing that being surrounded by can't play canter. And a almost washed up Carmelo Anthony and Derek Jones Jr. and Robert Covington, both guys who are who are long and and capable, but guys you'd want more as your your fifth option in your starting lineup, not your 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 third, not your most important wing players, you know. And so while there was a whole testament like this was the deepest ever Blazers at the beginning of the year. That deepness yeah. has been undercut, losing the only other two guys on this roster with all-star potential. And Dame has responded by playing out of his mind. And his clutch numbers are ridiculous. I don't think, going back to our definition, there is a single other player in the league who has the same amount of positive impact on whether his team wins or loses than Dame so far. What do you think? Sure. Um, so this is tough because I, I love Dame and I think he deserves this, but I'm trying to pull up, pull up the tweet, which basically shows that in every single statistical category, Steph is outperforming him, um, by, by a tiny little bit, whether that's, you know, shooting percentage, three point percentage, uh, assist percentage, all these things. And so to me, the the candidacy of Dame comes down to clutch numbers, basically, right? Because that's where he's been better than Steph, admittedly. You know, like Steph has always not been like a, a ridiculous clutch player, just a, a really, really good one. Um, that's something I'm willing to admit. And so I think for Dame, it's it's the fact that he's able to perform in clutch, and that is what's taking the uh, the Blazers up the ladder in the standings. Because I think without without Dame and without you know the guys that he's missing right now, I think the rosters between the Warriors and the Blazers are a little bit comparable. You know, maybe Draymond's better than any of those guys, but at the same time, 
he really has a hard time leveraging his impact without great players. Like he's a very additive, very ceiling, you know, razor. Um, and so I, I can't, can't find this tweet, uh, but I, I swear it exists. Give me, give me one second. And basically the point being that like, you know, everything that Dave does, Steph just does a little bit more efficiently, a little bit better. And so I think that's where it's hard for me to, you know, to, to say where, where are we, where are we attributing the difference? Is it, is it just those clutch numbers? And if that's the case, I can, I can, I can abide by that. I can, I can be okay that say, you know, his ability to play in the clutch makes him more impactful in winning. But in terms of, you know, overall contributions, I, I just think Steph even, you know, as a very similar player, right. In, in play style and whatnot has him edged a little tiny bit. So that's yeah. why I have a hard time putting Dame in this, in this category. Yeah, I hear I hear you, you know, and like statistically and in in all in a lot of the ways that you just mentioned, like Steph should be considered in the exact same way that I would consider Dame right now. The difference for me again goes back to the definition, right? Because the definition is gonna be split into two parts. The most positive impact and the team winning and losing. Right. So it's not based entirely off a team winning and losing. It's not based entirely on like, it, it, it's not based entirely on winning and losing. It marries that to the most positive impact of anyone else. Right. And so as of right now, with the uh, Blazers up several games on the Warriors in the standings and whatnot, like, despite the fact that they are very comparable statistically and Steph is even better in some of those efficiency ways, right? For me, Dame has more of that positive impact on winning and losing so far. This could change. If the Warriors go on a four-game winning streak and the Blazers go on a four-game losing streak and they leapfrog each other in the standings, that changes this conversation for me. And the silly part about having this conversation right now is we're currently sitting in the middle of the season. Yeah. Right. And all of this could change with one injury tomorrow, you know? And, and yep. so that sort of like has a little bit of the, the folly of the conversation, but uh, come for me, it comes back to that, that definition as of right now, Dame has more positively affected winning for his team than Steph has for his team. Sure. And I think this, this really actually gets to a great question I want to ask you is that if we could conceive of a perfect, you know, one number stat, if we could, whether it's Raptor, whether it's war, whether it's, you know, VORP, you know, whatever it is, right? Like if we could get something that we were all confident that says this accounts for everything, this accounts for deflections, it accounts for how closely they guard somebody, all of, all of the considerations that, you know, like right now, I, I, I find the problem with analytics. Like we try and you know, distill everything down to one number. We just don't have enough information to do that yet. If we could, like hypothetically, right? Totally quantify one player's impact versus another. Would you be comfortable just giving this award, this, you know, version of the MPP that we're talking about really to the guy with the biggest number in that category? Because I think we end up having subjective kind of debates about something that we want to treat objectively, right? Like we've, the whole day we've been talking about, you know, how do we get this more scientific? How do we get this more accurate, more, more closely defined? And I think to me, the, 
the best way to do that is to make it purely numbers. And I, I think that robs it of some of its power and some of the enjoyment. But at the same time, I do, I do think if, if the perfect analytical model could be created, that that would, that would change this discussion a little bit, right? Because that's, that's the only way to objectively measure one guy's contribution versus another. Because we can, we can sit here and debate about like, you know, I think this guy's a little bit better. And I think this guy's a little bit better. And if, unless we're, you know, using something to justify that, it's purely opinion and purely, purely, uh, purely subjective. Yeah, I mean, you're you're hitting on on a, on a, a kind of like the most important point of this conversation that we've had. You know, is with the MVP, we've said it a few times already. It is impossible to uh, best quantify this. All the advanced stats that have tried have failed, right? So all all we can all we can try is to do our best, and I think. With this definition we have, we'll have to come back to this later on in the season. Uh, I think we we've, we've pretty out. much yes. we've pretty much yes. hit all the points that we can hit so far. But when we know what the final rankings are, what the final stats are, and if Steph or Dame starts to shoot sixty percent from three for the rest of the season, and their team loses only three more games for the rest of the time, that changes things. If LeBron continue like is able to drag that offensive efficiency back up, that changes things. If Embiid sprains his ankle and is out for four weeks, that changes things. So we, I think we've hit the okay. points that we can. I think we should save this definition. Yeah. I think we've, uh, we've talked this thing out in pretty, pretty impressive ways. Totally. I, uh, like I have one final takeaway, if, if you would permit me. And that's Do basically it. that, you know, the, the way that we think about basketball is that, uh, individuals influence winning more than any other sport, which I think is true. And at the same time, what I think this exercise reveals to me is that it's still a collective, right? It's still a team sport and it's still something that's driven by the, the fit and the effort and, and the chemistry that exists between all those guys and how they're deployed by the coach, right? Like it's, I, I'm realizing how folly I, I personally believe it is for us to uh, especially when we turn talk to team success or you know, like dragging a guy anywhere or dragging a team anywhere i think it's it does a disservice to what basketball is and and how collaborative it is and how much it requires synergy between players and synergy of effort and synergy of ability how you know how much our discussion not no, not you and me but just as as a basketball community and fans really really does a disservice because we we don't want to admit it because that's harder to talk about right like that's that's more complicated that you can't ever the idea that you can't ever totally divorce a player from his context or a player for his team it's it's sad because it means there are no definitive answers but i think that is what i'm i'm realizing is more of my truth to get very cheesy about this is is it's a team sport and it's almost impossible to to perfectly ascertain an individual's an individual's effect on all of this. Well said, sir. This is a conversation that, like we said, we'll we'll come back to in the future. It's not going away. No, no. Uh, yeah. Apologies to everybody out there that we don't uh, have a more definitive answer. No, do you want to? Do you want to say Dame is your Dame is your pick? Right? Is that as of right now, right now, February twenty third at two twenty four p.m. It's a Tuesday. Dame is my MVP. <laughs> All 
Okay. Um, if I had to give an answer, it's it's really close for me between Jokic and Steph. Um, I I might I might lean Steph some days. I might lean Jokic other days. I just think the the way that their teams are terrible without them and the the difference between that and what they are with them is so ginormous and so unique that to me those are those are two guys who are neck and neck and I think Embiid is is closely in there so I I, I don't have a definitive answer and maybe I need to to spend some more time and, and figure this out but that's that's where I end up so for everybody out there unless you have any other thoughts Nolan that's that's where we'll leave it apologies for the beast of the episode if you made it this far good on you yeah Wow. Uh, did not expect this to go that long, but I'm, I'm glad we got the time to do so. And, and really, I'm happy with, with everything we said. Okay. Uh, that, that being said, again, thank you, everyone. If you are out there listening still at this point, thank you for tuning in. This has been the Hockey Assist. You can look for new episodes dropping each Wednesday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, leave a review, and, and keep that conversation with us going because your feedback is, is what makes us want to put our opinions out there in the world. Uh, if, you, if you have feedback, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, you can use our Twitter account, which is at hockey underscore assist, or you can hit me up at badluckriley12. I, I love engaging with everyone. And uh, unless, Nolan, you have any last words, then that'll be it for today. That's it. That's it. All right. We hope you enjoy the show and we cannot wait to bring you more. For Nolan Cope, I'm Riley Gaucher, checking out of episode 10 of The Hockey Assist. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.